You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. A number of opportunities for master's level pharmacologists exist in the pharmaceutical industry, biotechnology companies, government agencies, research laboratories, and academic programs. Introducing the Master of Science in Pharmacology program from the University of California, Irvine, UCI. The knowledge acquired in the Master of Science in Pharmacology program would also benefit those seeking employment in industry or advancement in teaching, technical and scientific writing, patenting, or pharmaceutical sales and marketing. Fall registration is now open. Apply today at sites.uci.edu slash mspharmacology to learn more and reserve your seat by June 15th, 2020. That's sites.uci.edu slash mspharmacology and reserve your seat today. The deadline is June 15th, 2020. Today, we live at a unique point in human history where data is becoming the new currency. Beyond oil, dollars, and social status, data is emerging as one of the most powerful and consequential currencies around the globe. Technology, computer processing, cloud storage, and artificial intelligence are empowering these data to transform zeros and ones into insightful and even profound realizations about almost every aspect of our lives. I'm John Nosta. And this is FutureDose.Tech. Technology, pharmacy, and better healthcare delivery by creating more efficient, higher quality concierge-like pharmacist services, we can transform from the pharmacist of yesterday into the future provider of pharmacy tomorrow. FutureDose.Tech is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the global leader in pharmacy podcasting, and the largest, most influential network of podcasts about the profession and business of pharmacy. Pharmacy Podcast Nation special guest host today, Mr. David Berkowitz, who's a PharmD, currently an OmniCell One Field Consultant and the Director of OmniCell Fellowship in Data Analytics. Previously, David worked for approximately 10 years in various inpatient pharmacy administrative roles at Partners Healthcare and Boston Medical Center, both in Boston, Massachusetts. In addition to his inpatient pharmacy experience, Dr. Berkowitz has also worked for two digital health startups serving as Director of Pharmacy and Strategy at Pilo Health and the president of Veracurious. He is a graduate of Massachusetts College of Pharmacy, where he is also an associate professor of pharmacy practice, and he serves on their Digital Health Advisory Committee. I'm excited that David will be taking over FutureDose.Tech for today's episode. Thank you for that introduction, Todd, and thank you for having me on today. I'm honored to be taking over the Future Dose podcast. This is I have some big shoes to fill. My friend Tim Onkst has previously uh, podcasted under this umbrella, so thanks again for having me. So today I'm joined by Daryl Schiller. Daryl is a leader in uh, pharmacy administration. He is a member of ASHP, and that's how we know each other, and just an all-around mensch. So thank you for coming to Daryl, coming today, Daryl. So uh, normally, as uh, the one who's uh, facilitating this type of meeting, 
I would start with a joke or you know some witty comment, but but frankly, I just don't have anything witty or, or amusing to say today because I've had friends who are affected by COVID nineteen. I'm sure Daryl, you've had friends or colleagues who've been affected. So it's just I just don't have any jokes on the mind. So I want to get that out of the way. Um, so today, what I hope to get out of our conversation is just to spread some knowledge to the pharmacy, our pharmacy colleagues out, out in the rest of the country and hear from you about what your experiences have been like so far managing a pharmacy department. And I'd like to do that by going through um, a couple of different buckets. So I think about, I think about this from my previous eyes of being a pharmacy administrator and a couple of different ways. I think about it from a clinical perspective. I think about it from, a drug procurement perspective. I think about it from an operations perspective and also perhaps even a leadership perspective. So I plan to drive the conversation that way. And let's just get right into it. Um, Daryl, welcome. Uh, how generally, how are things been for you and what's it been like generally in New York? So it's been pretty intense. Uh, uh, things kind of locked down uh, a while ago. It, it, it seems like it's been ages, but really it's only been five or six weeks. Uh, but things have been kind of intense. Uh, just looking at the news and talking to colleagues in the city. You know, I'm actually not in the city. I'm in a suburb of New York City. Okay. Uh, probably about I don't know, half an hour or so north of... Uh, Times Square area of New York City. Just putting it into perspective, we um, we uh, we were still pr hit pretty hard. You know, the num the, the raw numbers don't match up to the volume of patients that were seen in in the uh, city hospitals. But uh, on a per capita basis, we were actually one of the uh, the higher uh, incidence regions of New York State. Uh, so it, it was um, it was a lot. It was a lot to handle uh, up front, and it was very stressful. A uh, lot of long hours, uh, a lot of uncertainty, uh, and I think we're kind of getting to the point right now where things are leveling off. Things are leveling off uh, clinically with uh, overall numbers that uh, are that we're seeing in the state, the number of uh, patients being hospitalized, the number of patients needing ICUs, number of patients on ventilators. And I, I often will say to, uh, to, to friends that ask about it uh, that the, uh, they we're not getting worse. But I, I always ask people to take uh, that cautiously because uh, I'm not getting worse. Uh, we're not getting worse. Kind of means we're not getting. Um, we're also not getting better. Uh, just kind of plateauing right now. Okay. Well, thank you, and thank you to all of your pharmacy staff and everyone else in your health system who is taking care of these patients. From an outsider's perspective, it definitely sounds pretty intense. One thing I've been reading in the news pretty regularly is a lot of talk about ventilators. 
And I've seen some mention of drugs that are needed to maintain patients comfortably and safely on ventilators. What, what, what has been your experience or what do you recommend that pharmacists think about in terms of maintaining inventory and making sure you have enough patients to safely ventilate? Uh, so you have the, the physical aspect of the actual ventilator itself. Uh, you have the personnel aspect, the, you know, the, the nurses that are going to be available to maintain uh, the, the ventilator uh, and, and see the patient. But I think from the purpose of, for the purpose of our conversation, really talking about the medications that are needed um, to really put patients on ventilators. And it really comes down to something kind of interesting <clears throat> that patients, are, patients are, are needing a lot of medication uh, in the higher end of the uh, titrations also. So not every patient who gets put on a ventilator needs to be paralyzed, for example. Uh, and that's just standard practice. Not everyone is on a paralytic if they're on a ventilator. Uh, but we're seeing a, a, a lot of people who are uh, unable to manage on the ventilator alone. They do need to be paralyzed in order to synchronize their breathing against the ventilator. Uh, and not only are they uh, on a paralytic, but they're titrating up to some of the highest doses that you would normally use for patients. It's not even kind of entry-level doses. So you have problems with getting uh, the medications that are needed to be able to properly use ventilators. You know, and then uh, you know, just straight critical care type of coverage, you don't uh, paralyze someone without the appropriate secondary medications. You need the sedatives, and uh, those have also been hard to obtain as well. The supply chain took a really big hit uh, and early on. Uh, and I think that was the fact that everybody was seeing the same thing and everybody was trying to get the same medications and there just wasn't enough medication available to share with everybody. Uh, things, have, things have been, uh, at least for us, have been getting better. We, have, uh, we had some, some, <clears throat> some, some scary moments uh, early on uh, and took some creative planning with some of the other clinical pharmacists and the ICU doctors to try to figure out the best way to manage. But other than that early on scare, I think we've done a pretty good job, a really good job actually, of finding alternatives when we weren't able to get the primary drug uh, and then being able to jump on any opportunities to get the primary drugs when uh, they're available. How do you recommend pharmacy buyers or pharmacy leaders think about working with distributors or putting things on on back order have you have have you had success and how have you met how have you successfully navigated the supply chain so you know it's interesting there are things i would never have thought about in the past uh and then it kind of came up here uh as uh as things that uh, need to be done and what I mean by that is we buy drugs based on our need, our current need. And I don't really, really ever think about that. So being a community hospital, uh, we are considerably smaller than a large academic medical center. I mean, even though we're part of a larger uh, affiliation, a larger chain, uh, you know, we don't have the capacity that some of these larger metropolitan academic centers have. 
and it's never been an issue. We buy medications based on the needs that we have for the population we see, which is what anybody does. Right. Uh, but what happens in times of shortages, you have issues where wholesalers will allocate based on uh, perceived need. And perceived need is often based on purchase history. Right? If, if you need um, X many doses of a drug historically, then you know, the, the wholesalers will make sure that you're able to get that supply to manage your patients. So now when you have a shortage, especially a shortage like, like we've seen, we get extreme shortages, the allocation numbers are still there from previous history. But the supply that's coming in to fulfill those orders is less. And everyone's vying for the same thing. So now uh, one of the things I saw is that it was hard to get medications because our allocation limits just weren't high enough. We didn't that know to increase our back order numbers. You know, we, we put on our back orders. We need certain drugs. We, we put in the back order like usual um, for just the items that we wanted. We, we didn't, we've never had to be super aggressive because our volume has never been what it's, what it's been. Um, so that's one of the things that I, that I learned about this. We have to be really aggressive with putting back orders onto everything um, and look for ways to increase allocation limits in order to be able to even make a mark on the list of people who are eligible to receive drugs when you're comparing yourself against, you know, 1500 bed hospital that's what i was really curious about where i was going with this line of questioning is i'm so curious about discretion that distributors are showing in terms of recognizing areas that have you know maybe don't have previous allocation needs that meet the allocation that they're assigned and have they have they been able to sort of uh, adjust and 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 are they willing to change allocations based off of regionality? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what the, the wholesalers have been doing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I assume they've got uh, smart people there that can figure out the best way to manage it. Uh, I just feel like if, uh, if someone doesn't speak up for themselves and just tries to continue using the previous process that had been established for them, they're gonna, if they're a smaller hospital, they'll run into problems. Now, I made, as soon as I realized what was going on, I made sure to escalate that as, as quickly and as high as possible to get limits changed, to get assistance with it. And it was successful. I mean, I was able to get what I needed through that, but it wasn't instant. You know, the, the normal, ordering processes, the normal right. allocation distribution processes were failing behind my back. I didn't realize they were failing. Um, and the only reason they were failing is because our numbers, our need is generally always uh, less than the larger hospitals in the region. So it looks like we don't need it uh, or we don't need it as badly as others or it isn't as high priority compared to you know, we need 15 doses of something compared to someone who needs 2,000 doses of something. Right. That's why I was curious about this topic, because the system isn't really set up for a spike 
of specific types of patients is not set up for a pandemic because it's based off of previous usage. So that's something that, yeah. you know, when this is all said and done, we can look back at and um, those who are responsible for such things could could analyze and figure out perhaps a secondary way to go about assigning allocations. Um, in terms of drugs, how do you recommend, how do you have a specific process you recommend for keeping track of the medications and and who who needs to hear about what medications you have in stock to make sure that um, those who are responsible for say emergency preparedness are, are in the know as to where the pharmacy stands for inventory? So, you know, once again, being a, a community hospital, we don't have the same level of resources that some of the uh, more technologically advanced academic centers may have. And that just means uh, we do a lot of stuff with manual audits, mm -hmm. which when you're dealing with a smaller number, it works out. It's a pain in the neck. It takes time, but it's manageable. There's no way a large center can, can manage something like that if they uh, are doing uh, pen and paper audit, uh, inventory. But it's something that uh, we're able to manage. So therefore, uh, we keep track of this, uh, of what was going on with a manual audit. Uh, you know, I, couldn't, I can't run reports off of a dispensing carousel. I couldn't run uh, reports off of something else to keep track of what's going on. So, you know, when this whole thing started, uh, I, I made a list of what I thought were going to be the essential medications. And I actually wound up putting that list on to a... Uh, Google something or other, Google Forms, Google Docs, whatever the online mm -hmm. Google is. And we actually had volunteer come in, and if I, even a pharmacy student come in every morning and do inventory counts, count our paralytic agents, count our sedatives, count our narcotics, count um, our Plaquenil tablets, count our albuterol inhalers, all the things that were... Uh, essential uh, that, that I thought would be essential. This is an ongoing list uh, of what's going on. And the fact that it was on a cloud server, uh, I didn't have to worry about emailing it out to anyone when there's, when there's a change. It gave my, especially my clinical pharmacy staff, the opportunity to track what's going on in the literature and make adjustments to what the essential medication lists are. So uh, it, when um, a certain thing comes up as important, when, when uh, anticoagulation became uh, a high priority, then we were able to put on uh, Lovenox and Apixaban and whatever else we wanted to, to keep track of. And I didn't have to, to do that. I had other people that were able to proactively do that and you know go grab a count uh, and put it on there. So it just created a little more flexibility by doing it that way. Um, but it was really helpful to do that because we were able to then, or everybody was able to, to see what we had in stock. I knew what needed to be purchased, and I, need, I knew what to look for. My clinical specialist knew what we, what we had this morning, and we were able to work with the doctors to say, you know, we don't have any more of this drug, or we're running really low of this drug. Let's put together an algorithm and switch patients uh, that qualified down this pathway instead and use this alternate drug. So it was really helpful in that manner as well. I love it. So to summarize, you daily you used 
student or or um, volunteer extenders to do a manual account, you reviewed the manual account every day, and then you had a shared uh, shared document where that was visible to others within your department who they could take uh, they could look for opportunities for uh, where they where there's opportunities to utilize certain drugs because your inventory is strong. Uh, what about like did you was there any process in place for vetting the list of the critical drugs you were uh, monitoring or was that just a clinical pharmacist could add a drug based off of something they read? Was there any sort of review process? No, this was this is really an internal list that was just kept for informational purposes, really. It wasn't a, a high-end overall, this is everything in the pharmacy. This was, these are the key medications uh, that we need to keep track of. And really, you know, who's better to figure out what we need than my pharmacists who are, you know, on the floors with the, the doctors and the nurses and seeing how patients are responding and reviewing the literature to see where treatment should be driven. So they had full authority to uh, be able to adjust medication priorities, inventory uh, perspective, uh, based on what they saw going on in the literature, what they saw going on in the with the patients in the hospital here. In terms of, in terms of literature, how have you sort of approached with your staff or how do you recommend to others think about evidence-based medicine and practicing evidence-based medicine? Because, you know, we're trained a very specific way as pharmacists and we're in a different sort of world in which uh, evidence or certain degrees of evidence are coming forth pretty rapidly. How have you, how do you recommend pharmacists think about that? So, you know, we are, uh, often looking for evidence-based medicine to be able to drive decisions. You look at the guidelines, you look at what's in the literature. And as pharmacists, that's one of the things that we'll often do. It, it's even part of our training all the way down to pharmacy school where you have journal clubs. How do you evaluate the, the, the literature? Uh, and and you know, one of the most common questions we, we ask in our journal clubs is well, what would you? What should we be doing about this? Should we add this drug to formulary? Would you change your recommendation for these patients? Um, so, COVID nineteen created a uh, a situation where we couldn't rely on high quality evidence based medicine. There was still stuff there, but there wasn't high quality randomized trials out there. So it really became a little bit of a, a shift in perspective. You know, with with uh, limited treatment options, uh, we had uh, to shift the priority from whether or not a medication should be used to how do we safely use a medication. Uh, it became an, a, just an interesting paradigm shift that, that we really had to, to get into our heads. You couldn't say, well, you shouldn't be using azithromycin because there's no proven benefit when you combine it with hydroxychloroquine. Because right, that was that was one of the big things that was uh, up and running a few weeks ago. Well, you know, under standard circumstances, of course, there's there's no benefit, there's side effects, there's all these. Why bother doing it? But we're in a situation where there is nothing to say that's going to work, and there's nothing to say that it won't work. So then, you're going to have uh, physicians that are taking care of patients that are 
really at the end of life or getting close to it, and they got to try something, and they want to do the best, the safest management possible using uh, unproven treatments because the alternative is not something anyone would want to think about. So, really, what what uh, what we were doing is trying to find how do you safely do it. Okay, you're going to use this this combination of drugs. Uh, these are the things to look out for with them. How can you mitigate the risk? What should be done in order to make it as safe as possible? Absolutely. So in terms of mitigating risks, was there anything? So when I think about systems and I work in automation, I think about if I was a pharmacy director and, and if there was an investigational study going on, I know that how that drug is coded in my system may not fire a drug-drug interaction or may not sort of flag an adverse drug event, the possibility of an adverse drug event, because the way that those systems are populated is through uh, a proprietary database like First Data Bank. So how, do the, how have you thought about how to mitigate some of those holes that, that um, end up sort of becoming systems issues when a drug is coded as an investigational drug? And in general, how have you thought about, how do you recommend pharmacists think about using more investigational protocols to identify and proactively prevent drug-drug interaction or ADRs? Well, there's two ways to answer that. I'm just gonna go forward with our current scenario, our current situation uh, in society today. Uh, and, and that really is the fact that there are not a lot of medications that are under investigation. F I'm talking about FDA-approved medications that are being used off-label, mm -hmm. uh, which it, there, there aren't a lot that are being used. So in terms of being able to look out for very specific things, it, it's not something that's too difficult to do. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff is worked out with the physicians. You're able to pull a cardiologist in mm -hmm. and help uh, get some thoughts on developing what's the safest way. Do you think we should be managing you know, potential uh, QT prolongation issues? Uh, what's the, pull the hematologist in? And what's the safest way you think we should be managing uh, anticoagulation for these patients who are having apparent hypercoagulable states. So the volume of things to look for was relatively small. Uh, it's obviously not something that can be scaled across the system, mm -hmm. system pharmacy uh, enterprise. But when you're dealing with a small set like this, it wasn't too bad. And uh, we're able to even work with uh, informatics pharmacists to be able to build in alerts, secondary alerts, that might come specifically attached to a medication order. Uh, so it may, an alert and a comment may pop up on the MAR, the, med the MedAdmin record for the nurse when they give it, or a comment uh, may pop up in the automated dispensing cabinet uh, when medication is pulled. Uh, or, or really, like I said, the, the small number of medications that were used really wasn't a problem for our pharmacy staff to keep track of. Now, part of this, uh, part of this goes to the fact that this, the, the pharmacy department that, that we've built here is a very clinically oriented 
department. Uh, and this is one of those things that I feel uh, is like an investment. Right? You, you buy stock at uh, a low price and you want to see it grow and sell it when it gets high. Well, here is the selling point for anyone who <laughs> bought their stock low. So if, if you had the ability to, to develop a clinical service, like not just a clinical specialist service where you may have four or five pharmacists in a separate, separate room that do things, but if your entire pharmacy department is a clinical service, now is the time to really reap the benefits, to sell your stock high and see what your clinical pharmacist can do. Clinical pharmacist being every pharmacist, see what they can do. We are very clinically oriented departments. You know, the majority of, of uh, our staff are all are, are boards, at least one board certification. Mul Some people have multiple board certifications. The majority of our staff participate in multidisciplinary rounds. I still have a clinical specialist service on top of our uh, clinical staff, uh, but because we put so much effort over the years into cultivating a clinically oriented department, Maybe that's why I had that level of trust in saying it's not that many drugs for them to look after because this is something that they were doing with their eyes closed before COVID-19. So it sounds like that investment really paid off in the sense that you were, uh, at least from a clinical perspective, your team was able to um, to handle you know the, these type of curveballs anyway. And it sounds like the drugs that there wasn't just the volume of drugs and interactions and ADRs just were, was manageable per se, but uh, such a good point about, about clinical services and the value of clinical services. And, you know, when this is all said and done, you know, we'll have to debrief and think about how we can tell our story, right? Tell the pharmacy story. What was, yeah. what was the pharmacy impact? What, how were, how are we so integral to, to navigating this pandemic? Um, in terms of, in terms of drugs and managing drug shortages, um, and this will sort of tie in nicely with how you've so far explained how you've interacted with the staff. But um, when I think about, let's say, here's a scenario. Let's say I run out of dilated two milligrams per ml, and I need to change over to dilaudid four milligrams per ml. For, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges a health system or hospital will face is getting communication, communicating out to people who need information in a rapidly changing environment. And for my example, if you're changing that concentration of dilaudid, that's a big change, right? And there's, these are drugs that have a low therapeutic index and the patient could become snowed really fast. How do you make sure that nurses and pharmacists are aware of all the rapidly evolving um, changes that are going on? Yeah, that's a really good question, David. And we actually came across that recently. It's been uh, something that came up with, uh, with norepinephrine. You know, we, uh, when, the, when the supply chain was really tight, you jump on any opportunity. And I saw that our norepinephrine was getting low. And we, we normally use norepinephrine in a four milligram dose uh, in, um, in an IV bag, an IV solution. And uh, I had the ability to buy 16 milligrams in 250 ml IV solutions. 
four times more concentrated than what we normally use. Right? Pretty serious for relief effect. Right. Uh, but I didn't want to run the risk of having nothing, so we purchased uh, a good supply of it, and we started using it, and we put a lot of work up front into making sure that all the systems were built before we actually released any of the medication. We made sure our electronic health record uh, had that as an orderable line. We made sure that the concentrations were built into the calculation tables. Uh, we made sure that uh, our dispensing cabinets had the proper, the proper alerts that came up um, and you know, targeted education. We know that a med surge nurse is not gonna be giving levofed. Um, so we made sure that the critical care nurses, which really at this point, half the hospital is critical care, it seems like. Uh, right. We made sure that everyone knew that there's a strength, a concentration difference, a strength difference. Um, but in the end, it, it, uh, you know, a lot of the automation surrounding it um, really is what helped. The, the electronic health record, uh, doing all the calculations behind the scene for what is the appropriate uh, drip rate in order to achieve the uh, concentration that you, that you want to actually administer to the patient. What about the infusion pump library? You know, we have smart pumps. So the infusion pump libraries are updated. So as long as everyone followed the same process and didn't skip steps, um, which I'm not aware of anyone doing, skipping steps, I mean, uh, you know, is if they check their bags and they start, oh, this is fed 16 milligrams, and oh, look, here it is in my infusion pump library, 16 milligrams, select that. Well, you have the systems that are now programmed to do the work for you. Were you sending out, did you have like a, blog post or something on the internet? Were you sending out communication emails? Did you have like a standard cadence with your staff to up regularly update them? So, so yeah, we, we for the last few years actually, uh, do daily meetings with, with our staff. Uh, and we actually have a midday huddle uh, with the staff and we've been doing it for years. Uh, you know, the biggest change on our huddle is that we went from uh, asking all the staff to come down to the main pharmacy to do a more uh, virtual huddle. So we still had our, our technicians, our IV room staff, and some of the other uh, pharmacy uh, personnel were in the main pharmacy all spread out. Uh, but we had our, you know, our clinical specialists, our critical care pharmacists. We had, we had other pharmacists that were still decentralized. They would call in instead. So that was one of our big opportunities to really update everybody on uh, what the changes are. Uh, we also would send out an email whenever there's a policy change, whenever there's something that, that need, everyone needs to know. Uh, early on, kind of poll the staff, what's the best way that you want to receive information? What's going to be the best for you? And everyone wanted email. Mm -hmm. So we, we would discuss it during our midday huddle. We would email everything out as well. Um, and then I even put up a big, as old school as it may sound, a big corkboard in the back of the pharmacy with uh, a title on COVID communication. And I put copies of the uh, most updated protocols uh, that we developed or any particular uh, pieces of information that were especially important. So we had, you know, 
the huddles, the emails, and a communication board for the staff. Uh, but also on kind of a smaller level, uh, we also coordinated communication multiple times throughout the day. Just my, uh, my managers and myself, uh, my clinical specialist, we would do a morning call, a morning briefing call. Um, and we had our midday huddle, and then we had an end of day debriefing call. And this is really to help make sure everyone stays on track. I wanted to make sure that uh, our managers every day had a punch list of things that they wanted to try to achieve. Checking at midday with the staff, how are the staff doing, how are the managers doing, and then checking again at the end of the day with just the managers, did you guys achieve what you set out to achieve? And uh, it, it was uh, not as overwhelming as it may sound because these are real brief meetings. I mean, every so mm -hmm. often it goes for 15 minutes. It's already getting kind of antsy. Quick in, quick out, quick morning briefing. What are you planning on doing today? Bang, bang, bang. Okay, what are you doing? Bang, bang, bang. All right, we'll check in midday and see how it's going. In terms of some of those changes, are there any um, operational changes that you'll rec that you recommend that pharmacy leaders consider when they're going through a spike of patients? So this particular situation created unusual scenarios, uh, and a lot and, and all of that really had to do with the, the need to create new areas in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So from op an operational standpoint. Um, one of the biggest challenges, other, other than staffing, uh, which was itself a challenge, but other than staffing, one of the biggest operational issues was actually supplying new areas of the hospital with medication. And not just any medications, we were creating new ICUs. So you, know, you, you, you may, may have three, four, five new ICUs uh, that are created over the course of one to two weeks. And now you have to come up with plans to know what medications are going to be needed. So that's one of the things I, I uh, recommend to people. Have your med lists. What, what, mm -hmm. is, what are the, uh, the critical care medications that you need? Because you don't want to have to go running last minute for it. You want to be able to provide a source of all the necessary medications. So what are the medications? And then how are you going to actually distribute them? So you know, our, our solution... Uh, was that we, we, we fortunately had a few dispensing cabinets that were not being used. They were brand new cabinets. They were slated to go live in a newly created area of the hospital. Um, and uh, because of COVID-19, that new area of the hospital was converted to ICUs instead of its intended purpose. And we were able to put some of those new machines there. We repurposed them from uh, a med surge machine into a critical care machine. And set them up there um, and eventually you know, when you run out of those we started to repurpose our anesthesia uh, machines from our ORs so not ideal but it was the only thing we had and still provided some degree of medication security so we rebuild an anesthesia machine into an ICU inventory type of machine and deploy that out into one of the new ICUs so you had your medication list you had to come up with ways to actually uh, supply medication to the the area, um, and then keeping on track on top of, of uh, the changing needs of the patient population. They're being able to keep on refilling the medications. 
sometimes it was something as minor and easily overlooked as where you're going to physically put your dispensing cabinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was nothing that I thought about initially. I said, oh, here, we, here, there's already power network over here, so let's put it over here. Because right? I'm not going to ask for new construction to be done when they're going live in three hours on a new unit. So I put it where, I, where it seems to go. But, you know, that might not necessarily be the best place because maybe there's going to be uh, a patient bed uh, 12 inches away with a ventilator on it. And now you're going to have compacted area. Uh, so uh, so in, in order to be able to create some breathing room for the nursing staff and the patients, uh, and to also be able to provide the ease of delivering medications, um, strategic locate, strategic placement of dispensing cabinets was something I didn't think about until it actually happened. And how did you think about, um, I've sort of a two-part question. How did you think about what workload metrics were you monitoring or what do you recommend pharmacy leaders think about in terms of workload metrics? How do those sort of relate to operational changes within staffing? And my last, I guess this is a three-part question, is, is how did you, what strategies were employed to sort of limit movement throughout the hospital or even in and out of medication, in and out of patient rooms too? So workload metrics are always something that's kind of tricky. Uh, a lot of it depends on the ability to actually get the data that you want. Right. Uh, and uh, I assume even the more higher end uh, electronic health records will still have their own challenges. Uh, in obtain in uh, retrieving data, so uh, it's always been a challenge for me to be able to get meaningful data. But out of necessity came the need to really find a way to make it happen. So I did the best I could, and I, I quickly learned a whole bunch of new ways to use pivot tables in Excel, and learned all these new formulas that I can use to sort through data. You know, a, a drug in the database might have uh, multiple ways of, multiple names on it. It mm-hmm. might be called different things. Uh, plus it will, uh, it will have uh, often the uh, various indicators in it. Amlodipine, 10 milligram tablet. So I can't just do a pivot table for amlodipine because all the amlodipines are gonna show up. I can't just do a pivot table. I can't just split the cell and do a pivot table for tablet because not everything is, well, not everything might be called a tablet. It may be a capsule. Right. Right. So it just became, it became a little bit of um, a, a learning opportunity for me to figure out how to really optimize some of the formula functions in Excel, how to do um, uh, if then a lot of if then statements, a lot of some product uh, formulas in Excel, and being able to put together these really long formulas in Excel, you know, show me anything that has this word, this sequence of letters, this or this one, or this one, or this one, and I'm able to kind of sort through things that way, uh, and it actually worked out fine. I remember spending almost an entire day learning some new formulas, and then thinking through, how am I going to use this formula? I know this formula is what I want to do, 
but how am I going to use it? Because maybe there's, maybe this is the first step in a sequence of like three or four formulas in order to get the data. But when all that is said and done, I was able to get some data that I actually really liked and I'm going to continue doing this going forward to show uh, things like IV compounded products, right? And that one is, if, if we had the technology um, for IV room automation, this goes away. It's all done automatically, but you know, we, don't, we don't have that technology. We're, we're still a pen and paper check system in our IV room. It's right. uh, not the safest way of doing it, but it's the best way that we have. Uh, reality is we don't have the finances to buy high-end automation systems. So we do a lot of safety checks manually. Um, so it took a lot of work. Now I'm able to look at uh, a rough but pretty good estimate of how busy the IV room is, for example. And I was able to see our IV workload uh, trend up slowly, slowly, quickly, quickly. And within two weeks, our IV compounded products nearly tripled. Wow. And what about um, limiting? Did you use any metrics or just general strategies for limiting movement throughout the hospital or limiting fills? Uh, we were able to... Well, a lot of this started with how do we distance? And you know, we didn't have the luxury of, of a large staff um, or, a, or a, a pool of per diems to be able to, to choose from where we could create staffing patterns. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of stuff that people were doing where they had various teams and they could create patterns of staffing. And the reality is I just don't have the number of staff to do. I, I have one pattern. That's it. Uh, and if I don't mm -hmm. follow that pattern, then I don't, I don't staff the department. I just don't have enough people. Right. So what we wound up doing is, uh, well, to answer your question, what we wound up doing is finding things that could be shifted to lower, lower staffed shifts. So overnight, for example, we don't have as many people in the pharmacy. So what can we move that is normally done during the day shift and make that an overnight shift responsibility. So we looked at workload metrics, how much is being, how much drug is being delivered on our cart fills, for example. What units are the high cart layers? Can we move that to overnight? And can we find someone who's willing to go from a daytime job to an overnight job? Yep. Uh, and we were, you know, we were able to do it. It was actually really successful. And one of the, again, one of those learning points, one of the lessons from this might be that there's a benefit of having an additional person overnight where we normally are low staff because um, now you have an extra person to help out for times when it might get busy. But you also are able, we're able to get our cart fills out well before the day shift even starts. Uh, and morning med passes that the nurses are doing are a little bit less of an issue. So it sounds like there's been a decent amount of sort of unintended learnings from this whole ordeal. What do you yeah. think has been your, like, the most valuable or when you look back, what will be the, the biggest, your biggest sort of take-home learning opportunity? So this kind of ties back into what we were talking about earlier with the clinically oriented department and having the level of trust 
in our staff to be able to function at uh, that kind of a level. And one of the things that we did uh, as, as the patient census surged, um, pretty high actually, much higher than we've ever seen in my tenure at the hospital, uh, naturally the number of medication orders will go up. And uh, our work queue at the pharmacist, uh, would, when you, you work in a hospital pharmacy, you know what the pharmacy queue is. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the queue would, would get to be considerably larger than what we would normally see. And very often, you know, your, your, farm, your work queue in, in the hospital is filled with maybe some stat orders at the top, some standing regular routine orders in the middle, and then the bottom of your list may be um, all the orders that have kind of fallen down on the priority line because there's some kind of follow-up that needs to be done. Something has to be clarified. The doctor ordered a non-formulary drug. The, the dosing doesn't match up with the kidney function. If this is something wrong, that... So we, uh, we, we analyzed what were the, the bottlenecks in our queue, and we put together a policy that really gave the pharmacists um, semi-prescriptive authority. You know, we took advantage of being in an emergency situation and a greater level of flexibility that uh, might be afforded to us. And we identified the biggest bottlenecks and we created this policy that, uh, I guess, like I said, semi-prescriptive uh, authority, it's somewhat collaborative practice. and Like auto-substitution, get, basically? Like, being able, like giving the pharmacist the ability to assess the patient, patient's record and make mm-hmm. a judgment about what's the best way to handle the issue with the order that's already sitting there. It might have been a non-formulary medication. And instead of having to track down the physician and say, oh, we don't have this drug on formulary, can we change them to that drug? A lot of that stuff is already automated in our system. But you can't automate every single drug that's out there. Mm-hmm. So there is always, there's always a non-formulary something, a new thing that's not part of our policy yet, a new item that would otherwise need a, a clarification. So we gave our, our staff the authority to make a judgment call on what to change a non-formulary item to. We have different systems within different parts of the hospital. And uh, you know, another good one was uh, when it came to the fact that we need to have heights and weights on a patient profile in order to uh, verify an order. Pharmacists can't access an order and verify if the height and weight is missing. And the fact that we have multiple computer uh, systems in the hospital, different area, emergency room, that information may not transfer over into the main system. So okay. one of the bottlenecks is heights and weights are missing. It locks the pharmacist out. They can't process the order and becomes a, a lot of back and forth phone calls to get the information. So you can plug it in and... Um, now it calculates a creatinine clearance and you can proceed. Um, but unfortunately, it's an all or nothing type of system. If the information's missing, even the non-renal dose drugs are locked out. So we gave the pharmacist, again, the ability to make a, a, a judgment call. It seems relatively simple and almost obvious. Well, here's an otherwise healthy 30-something-year-old person who um, has a serum creatinine of 0.8. Right? Do you really need to have the height and weight 
to be able to make a, a decision on what to do. It probably will help, and certain drugs may be more susceptible than others, but it's one of those things that we put that authority into, the, into our policy and give the pharmacist the ability to make judgment calls about uh, analyzing patients' uh, labs to determine the appropriateness of verifying an order. Anything that was really up in question, the pharmacist had, um, again, clinical decision authority to call the physician if needed and say, ah, you know, I don't know what the kidney function is and this is a real dangerous drug. You know, can you help me out here? But for the most part, that didn't happen. And all these different types of relatively simple and almost obvious emergency policy adjustments made an enormous difference. I mean, we would have backlogs in our work queue of well over 100 orders waiting to be verified. And nowadays, if we ever get into the teens, 14, 15, 16 orders sitting in the queue, what's going on, guys? Why is it it's taking so long? It's, uh, it, it really made a huge impact by giving the pharmacist the authority to have more decision-making abilities when it came to verifying an order and not having to call the physician for every, especially every non-clinical related issue. I love that anecdote. And that's, you know, that's exactly what pharmacists are trained to do. Work at their top of the life license, use their, their clinical, their cognitive skills to, to sort of navigate the issues that arise between like different products, but still being able to main, maintain clinical intent of the order. And, and that's also, sounds like an awesome opportunity in terms of sort of demonstrating value because it sounds like you have a clear metric in terms of the obvious improvement in sort of time to time to between order entry and administration of the drug. It sounds like there's an obvious yeah. place to, to measure the impact that pharmacists are having with these changes in, in policies and procedures. So that's, that's a pretty, that's an awesome sort of, anecdote to end on. And, and I have just one last question. Um, so far, what has been, what do you feel like has been your proudest moment going through all of this? Um, proudest moment is that, I guess, is that we've, we've had a lot of positive feedback from medical staff, uh, about the role that the pharmacists have been playing. The, the, the medical staff, um, the nursing staff, everyone is so, is so overwhelmed. It, you know, not only is it a, an extremely high census in the hospital, but you're dealing with critically ill patients. So it's compounded. A high census is compounded by acuity. Um, and uh, a lot of the physicians have expressed their gratitude uh, in the role that the pharmacists have been playing with staying on top of the literature, staying on top of the treatment trends, and uh, when the doctors are looking to do something that is kind of out of the left field, uh, because that's what word on the street is at the moment, the pharmacists have really been step up and uh, not stop them from trying, but keep them uh, within safe boundaries of doing so. Uh, so I think that see, seeing the, the messages, the emails, thank yous from the, the medical staff um, about the, the value that the pharmacists have been 
providing um, has really, it really caps off the vision that I personally have of pharmacy practice being a more uh, patient-centric, clinically-oriented um, specialty. Couldn't agree more. It just sounds so rewarding. Well, thank you. Th sincerely, thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me today. I know you're really busy. And thank you from all of our listeners out there for you know, sharing your experiences with us. I know I learned a lot. And stay safe. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks for having me on again. My pleasure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to FutureDose.Tech. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast on your favorite social media outlets. Be sure to stay connected to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and return for your next FutureDose.Tech episode coming soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.